Every once in a while, I'm brought up short, put in my place even, by an encounter with an informed, intelligent person who nevertheless has no clue whatsoever what I do, what a pastor of a church does. I had such an encounter last week over pizza with a bunch of Little League parents. Generally, when people find out I'm a pastor, they start watching their language and act, <laughs> act a little bit artificial, which makes me feel sad. In this case, when it finally came up in the normal course of conversation that I'm a pastor, one person asked, do you work any other day besides Sunday? (laughs) Now let me be quick to say I am not making fun of this person, because how would someone outside the church know what a week in the life of a congregation looks like? But you see, that was the rude awakening, because it put in stark relief the extent to which being an active, practicing Christian in Marin County, the type of person who would know that a past, what a pastor's schedule looks like, is to live on the margins of the culture, in a way. People in Marin County do not necessarily know what it is to be a Christian, beyond an inkling of what we do on Sunday morning. Now, they might think they know, An article I ran across linked to a video called, What Are Christians Known For? Across the divided, to stimulate a conversation with anybody willing to have one. It seems to me this division, this separateness, isn't getting any of us anywhere. So I set out across the nation divided to stimulate a conversation with anybody willing to have one. From Southern Baptists to occasional Catholics to concerned atheists and apathetic Protestants, everybody believes something. Everybody's got a dog in this fight. But what impression does America have of Christians? What are they known for? So to be holy, I guess. Forgiveness. Going to church. Fanaticism. Killing off of non-Christians. Well, Christians are known for the Crusades. <laughs> Historically, warfare, but <clears throat> we try to forget about that. Mm, trying to get other people to be Christian would be one answer I'm thinking of. Being good people. Love thy neighbor type things. Mm, compassion. Theatrics. Loving Jesus. Probably Jesus Christ. Being really snobby. Yeah, a lot of hypocrites. Being a hypocrite. <laughs> trying to live the right life, trying to do the right thing. Well, gosh, I'd hope love. That's what we're supposed to be known for is love because we're followers of Christ. And Christ was love. Perfect love. Politics. I would say, especially in this country, politics. Save me from me. Save I'm grateful that at least some of the people interviewed echoed Jesus. Uh, This morning's passage in John's Gospel is shortly before Jesus' arrest. It follows the foot washing in which Jesus teaches the disciples about servanthood, hospitality, and love. And then Jesus announces one among them will betray him. And Jesus tells Judas to go quickly and get it over with. After Judas leaves, Jesus speaks the words in today's passage. Jesus tells the disciples what he wants them to remember most, to remember best. Little children, he says, I am only with you a little longer. And then, 
I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The call to love isn't new, of course, as Diana mentioned. Jesus took love your neighbors as yourself straight out of the Old Testament. But here the disciples are commanded to love as Jesus loved. They have a model, and they've just been shown graphically what that looks like in the foot washing. It's a powerful request, isn't it? He's asking them to care for each other as he cares for them. This command to love starts with the community of the disciples. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Love each other. Love each other. It doesn't end there, and I'll get to that, but it does start there. and That's hard enough. John wrote his gospel in the context of the early church, which experienced conflict from without and from within. And in order to bring the good news of Christ to the nations, the followers of Christ needed to take care of one another. The survival of the church required it in a world that was not friendly to Christianity. Once again, we find ourselves in a world that, in many ways, is not friendly to Christianity. And this is made more complicated by the fact that Christianity is still split by conflicts over how to interpret scripture, separation of church and state, who has an inside line on salvation, and so on. Jesus' advice to set aside our differences and love each other is as important as it ever was and just as difficult when our differences make it all too easy to end up treating our Christian brothers and sisters with contempt instead of understanding that they, too, are striving to be faithful instead of loving them. But at the same time, if we stop here, applying Jesus' new command to love each other only to ourselves, to our church and other Christians, that would be to miss the point. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. As the video shows, people are watching us. They may not be watching closely enough to know what, that being a pastor is a full-time job, or closely enough to know the difference between a Baptist, say, and a Presbyterian. They may not be watching closely enough to know whether it's okay to use swear words around us, but they are watching to see how we act. And among those people who are watching are our kids. Kids who are surrounded by a culture that proclaims loudly that religion in general and Christianity in particular is a bunch of hooey because it's not scientifically provable, the one measure our culture thinks it believes is valid. That culture is louder than almost anything we can say, but it is not louder than what we can show them. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Note what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, you will know them by their exacting adherence to the correct doctrine. He doesn't say, you will know them by the extent to which they take the Bible literally, or you will know them by who it is they condemn as sinners. And Jesus doesn't say, you will know them by their freedom from doubts and questions. By this Everyone will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Frederick Buechner tells a story about a Christmas pageant at a friend's church, an Episcopal rector. The manger was down front of the chancel steps. Mary was there in her blue mantle and Joseph in a cotton beard. The wise men were there and a handful of shepherds. And of course, in the midst of them all was the Christ child lying in the straw. The nativity story was read aloud by the rector with carols sung at the appropriate places. And it all went like clockwork until it came time for the arrival of the angels of the heavenly host as represented by the children of the congregation, who were robed in white and scattered throughout the pews with their parents, just just the way we do here. At the right moment, they were supposed to come forward and gather around the majors, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill to all. And that is just what they did. Except that there were so many of them that there was a fair amount of crowding and jockeying for position, with the result that one particular angel a girl who was smaller than most of the rest of the kids, ended up so far out on the fringes of things that not even by craning her neck and standing on tiptoe could she see what was going on. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to all, they sang right on cue. And then in the momentary pause that followed, the small girl electrified the entire church by crying out in a shrill voice, with irritation and frustration and enormous sadness at having her view blocked. Let Jesus show! (laughs) There was a lot of service still to go, but the rector said that one of the best things he ever did in his life was to end everything precisely there. Let Jesus show. The child cried this out, and while the congregation was still sitting and stunned in silence, he pronounced the benediction, and everybody filed out of the church with those unforgettable words still ringing in their ears. Let Jesus show. Let Jesus' love show, not just in the community of faith, but in the wider world of all God's children. Today, after worship, we have an opportunity to let Jesus show. Last year, we became a Bread for the World Covenant Church. Bread for the World is a collective Christian voice urging our nation's leaders to end hunger at home and abroad. It is Christians fighting hunger. We tackle hunger in our own congregation in many ways. We bring food for the food bank barrel every week. We contribute spare change to sensibility on the last Sunday of the month. That's today. Last week, we took part in the crop walk, and these contributions send food to hungry people. Bread for the world goes upstream. It works at changing policies. Bread for the world made an amazing movie called A Place at the Table, which we will try to get for a Sunday seminar next fall. We're going to try again with a video clip that explains why we need advocacy as well as merely donations. This is called Barbie's Story, and she's a person who is on food stamps. This one goes on the table. The assistance programs in this country are very hard to qualify for. It's like either you're starving or you don't get any help. But what defines starving? 
Like, if you don't eat for a day, are you starving? In their eyes, no. But in your eyes and the way you feel, of course. Okay. Good job. Mm-hmm. Okay. Put that in the water. Wait, do we got to break it? No, you don't got to break it. I do get food stamps now, but they last about three weeks out of the month. And for that last week, I'm just going crazy. Is it good? Mm-hmm. Put them in there. The ones that I cut. Uh, make it. I live on a food stamp diet for a week, along with Joanne Emerson from Missouri. We did so because we thought that the food stamp benefit was inadequate. Most of my colleagues had no idea that the average food stamp benefit was $3 a day. I had my budget, and I went to a supermarket. It took me an awful long time, because you have to add up every penny, and it has to last you for a week. And so I did it, and I will tell you, I, I was tired. I was cranky, because I couldn't drink coffee, because coffee was too expensive. And there were people who were living on that food stamp allocation. And you really can't. For us, it was an exercise that ended in a week. For millions of other people in this country, that's their way of life. Every day is a struggle just to eat. Since August, I lost my job. I had to get on public assistance to be able to have some type of income coming into the house. I'm struggling so much every day to be able to even feed my kids every day. All my life, I know what it's like to eat oodles and noodles seven days a week, three, four times a day, because that's all we had, and cans of Chef Boyardee, and when I had my children, I said I would never, ever let them taste it just because that was my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But life brings you situations and circumstances, and it's up to you to be able to deal with it and find a way to get through it. The past 10 years now, the federal government has spent billions of dollars fighting hunger in America. They expanded the food stamp program to make it a national program. They expanded the elderly feeding programs. They instituted a school breakfast program to go along with the school lunch program, which had gone back to the 1940s. It showed that public policy could work. Political will could work to make a difference in our country. Regular Americans rose up and demanded that we create a modern nutrition assistance safety net, which helped us almost end hunger entirely by the late 1970s. sure you could see that last graphic, which was that of the, of, uh, I don't know how many developed countries the United States is at the, it's at the bottom in food stability, which is an embarrassment. And of course, hunger advocacy isn't the only way that we can let Jesus' love show in a world that misunderstands him and misinterprets us. 
And it certainly isn't all we do here. There are thousands of ways we love one another here within the congregation, and the cover of your bulletins today shows just a few ways that First Presbyterian Church lets Jesus' love show out in the world. If you take a look at the bulletin cover clockwise, that's a, a clockwise on your uh, upper left, that's a hurricane rebuilding trip to the Gulf Coast that happened to be a youth trip. Uh, then there's Libyan Walt planting trees in uh, olive trees in Palestine, and then Ozma uh, helping build bridges across cultures on a tree planting trip to Afghanistan. The table covered with scarves and caps knit by our guests for the homeless shelter, and then Duncan Hall set out for bedtime at the shelter. And finally, the day our presbytery voted not to sanction the Reverend Janie Spar for performing same-gender weddings. So we do lots of things here, and I look forward to exploring this huge and wonderful topic of what it means to let Jesus show with you in depth when I return from sabbatical. But this is an opportunity we have today. Today we are asking you to stand up as Christians. Stand up as Christians and let Jesus show by writing letters to Congress. Royce is going to say some more about the details in his moment for mission, but people are watching. Our kids are watching. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.